Happy Lord's Day to you. Do we have any prayer requests this morning? Well, let me open up some brief word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for bringing us together for this time of fellowship, for this time of teaching. We pray that you would bless this time, Lord. We pray that all the Sunday school teachers, everyone in this classroom, everyone would be educated, not just that we have empty head knowledge, Lord, but that head knowledge that would lead to increasing our faith and our dependence, and most of all, our love for you. We pray this in Christ our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, first talk we covered uh, verses 1 through 12, and now we're going to pick up in verses 13 through 25. But before we jump into 13 to 25, let's do a, just a quick review. Um, we said that 1 Peter, in the category of Scripture, that it falls into is what? It's an epistle, right? It's a pastoral letter. Um, in, in part of the introduction, we discussed Aaron Wren's Three Worlds of evangel- Evangelicalism. Can anyone recall what those were? Very good. That's right. So the positive world is pre-1994, the neutral world where society takes kind of a neutral stance towards Christianity it was 1994 to about 2014. And now he says that we moved into the negative world, uh, which society has become um, to have a negative view of Christianity. And being known as a Christian is a social negative in, in a lot of circles, particularly in the elites and culture makers, right? Um, tech, tech companies, corporations. Someone last time it said academia. And then we said that if we took a look at these three worlds, um, which most closely resembles the setting of the New Testament? I'm going to say three, right? Yes, that's right. It's the negative world. So um, that's the uh, culture that First Peter is, is speaking into, and so therefore he's speaking to all of us when he tells us of suffering now and glory to come later. So Peter's letter is an encouragement to us. He basically asks the question, what hope do we have? And Peter proclaims Jesus Christ, our sure hope now and forever. Throughout this letter, he grounds our hope in the reality of what God has done and yet will do for us in Jesus Christ. This is important, so we'll go back to this as a way of review. We've talked about these two kind of big words here, right? Does anyone recall what these are? Indicative and imperative. Anyone want to take a stab here? What God has what? Done or accomplished? Imperative is what? What has to be done or what are we to do? And we talked about what is Christianity? Is it we do something and then we get something? Or is it 
we receive what has already been done for us. And how do we receive that? Let me just put some words on the board here. Let's start with... Um, well, let's talk about some world religions. Let's talk about Islam. Which one of these two categories would, it, would you put it into? Right, right. It's works-based. It's works-based. How about Catholicism? Definitely imperative. Well, um, Catholics believe in grace, right? But it's grace that basically then allows you to do something to add to that, right? It's um, well, ultimately it is this. Because if you contribute anything to your salvation, we're in this category. And essentially, there is no hope, right? If our salvation is dependent upon anything that we do, or dependent upon something for us to contribute, what hope do we have? We're weak vessels. Our only hope is what has been done for us, what has been given to us, the greatest gift of all. How about some uh, new things? Does anyone know what this means? NPP. It's an abbreviation for. Who said that? Right, Kathy. The new perspective on Paul. It's kind of a broad category, but it can. Does anyone want to. It's sometimes found in Reformed circles. Which category would it fall into? The basic teaching, broad category, but the basic teaching is that you're in by grace, but you stay in by works. So which category? Because staying in is dependent upon what? Something that we do. Are you confused? Do you, you follow it? Yeah. Yeah, so this is what God has done, right. and this is what we do, or what we are to do. Okay, my glass is something else. Thank you. How about this one, FV, what does that stand for? Federal Vision. Federal Vision, which category? It is found in within Reformed circles. Again, it is a broad movement. Probably can be summarized by, you're in by faith but you stay in by cooperating with grace. Which category? No, you lose your salvation. Yes. So if we had to summarize these, what would we say? What's one word that could summarize all of these? We obtain salvation by something that we do. Right? It's the exact opposite of what Christianity is. This, this is what all these are. What if I put another word on the board? Which category? Okay. 
It is, someone, so someone said indicative, but what is faith? It's not something that God does, right? God doesn't have faith. It's a gift of God. Yes, absolutely. It's an action that we see during the gift of God. It's a gift of God. What comes before faith? Does something come before faith? Regeneration. Very good, Keith. Regeneration precedes faith. And regeneration, is it something that we can do? No. Can we give ourselves new hearts? No. We need new hearts. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He gives us new hearts. And we respond in faith. And we talked about to whom the letter was written. The church is in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. Yes, Rick? Before you go there, can, can you explain when you brought up moralism? Right, and we're going to get to that, yes. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, yes, but who defines the goodness? The imperative, I define. The indicative. God is Ultimately, it comes down to do, our, do we contribute something to our salvation? Yes, we are going to get to that exact Bible verse, Be holy as I am holy. So just hold that thought. And if you still have additional thoughts or questions, please feel free. So who wrote the letter? We said it was the Apostle Peter. And when was it written? Sometime in the 1860s. What is the theme of the letter? Hope through Christ in the midst of suffering. And the purpose was, Peter's purpose is to encourage Christians to preserve in their suffering by setting before them the throne of grace reserved for them as well as the glory of Jesus Christ. We're going to provide a small synopsis there and in an outline. And we'll go ahead and jump in to verses 13 through 25. Does anyone want to read those? If not, I can, I can read it. So therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
So before we get into the actual verses, just a quick summary of verses 13 through 25. Peter's established the indicative. That's what we covered last week. Now he's jumping into more practical matters of obedience and endurance, but particularly in the setting of hardship. But the grounding of the Gospels is ever-present offering of help in these matters. Believers are first commanded not to set their hope on their own efforts or strength, but fully on grace that will be completely manifested when Christ returns, verse 13. We are granted grace here and now, and yet this grace will be publicly displayed before the whole world upon Christ's second coming. And then in verses 14 to 17, those flow from knowing that you were ransomed in verse 18. And what precious value is this grace? The precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb, verse 19, makes silver or gold, verse 18, seem like rubbish. We've been ransomed by the imperishable blood of Christ, which affords for us eternal life. And eternal life is just what it says, eternal. Therefore, the entire set of instructions to holiness and love in verses 13 to 22 are sourced in verses 23, since you have been born again. This is the rhythm of Christian living. Having been redeemed, we are free to live a life of glad obedience. This is our true joy. Having been loved so well, our delight is to love in return. We are not loved because we obey. We obey because we are loved. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed. And when were we loved? Very good, John. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Okay, verse 13. How does it start? What's the first word? Therefore. Therefore. What does that mean? Because of what I just said. Yes. Merriam-Webster says, for that reason, consequently, because of that, on this ground. So what is the ground here? What is the reference here? Therefore means because of this, now that. So what is the this because of this? We have to go back to what? Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That is the reference. To a living hope through the resurrection of Christ being born, resurrection of Christ from the dead. The reference is being born again. Peter is saying, because you have been born again, now do this. The indicative and the imperative. The imperatives of Christian living, what we are to do, because we are called to do things, always begin with the therefore. Okay? Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The indicative of what God has done for us, and more importantly, and in us, precedes the imperative of what we are now called to do for him. Without the indicative of what God does, the imperative is addressed to a helpless sinner, the victim of his illusions, 
It becomes a commandment that crushes or that drives to vain and presumptuous efforts. Our hope is God's gift. It's an inheritance created for us by Christ's resurrection. It is because we have been given a new life, we are called now to live it. Any questions, thoughts? Be holy. Because Christians have been given new birth into a new life, we must change the way we think and live to reflect the character of our God. The old way is useless, verse 18, and our new life was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus, verse 19. Because that which people believe about the future determines how they will live in the present. Peter exhorts us to set minds on the grace that is yet to come, verse 13, to live holy lives, verse 15, and to love one another deeply, verse 22, as we rid ourselves of the attitudes and behaviors that destroy the bonds of community. And we'll see this closer once we get into chapter 2. The Old Testament prophets searched intently for the timing of the Messiah's arrival. Although they lacked some of the finer details of Messiah's suffering, they generally understood that he would suffer, die, and finally be exalted. This can be found in places like Isaiah chapter 52, Daniel 9. Yet the Old Testament prophets did not know the precise timing of the arrival of the latter days and when the Messiah would suffer. Peter's audience now is living in an exciting time. The Messiah's arrival and establishment of his long-awaited kingdom. Christ inaugurated the new age, and Peter's audience then, and us now, must live in accordance with it. Verses 13 to 21, children of the Father. There's an old saying, like father, like son. Because Christians have been born again of God the Father, Peter calls us to be obedient children who bear a family resemblance to God. So can anyone think of any Bible verses where we are called to imitate our Lord? the most popular Bible verses for everyone. Like, there's a list of most popular Bible verses. Normally, Romans 8.28 is going to be right up there, right? Yeah. What about verse 29? Well, let's just start with 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And then verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many, many brothers. Jesus is the template. So holy living in the light of the latter days, in the light of the negative world. Peter first tells his readers who they are before, they, before telling them what to do. Like other biblical writers, Peter's warnings come on the basis of who they are in Christ. Again, We want to continue to highlight the therefore at the beginning of verse 13. Unless we have been made anew in Christ, we are unable to obey God's commandments. Unless we have been made anew in Christ, we are unable to obey God's commandments. Can anyone think of a Bible verse to support this? 
Can non-believers do good? So you're talking about the filthy rags in Isaiah. No, That's very good, John. Non-believers can do good works, but if they're not done for the glory of God, then they don't, they're not counted as righteousness. Very good, John. So we can see our neighbors who are non-believers doing good things on a superficial level, right? They may look good. There's a lot of people doing a lot of good things in the world for a lot of other people, humanitarian efforts and so on. But what is the root of it? What is at the heart? What is the motivation? If it's not done for God's glory, is it ultimately good? No, it is not. How about Romans 8, verses 5 through 8? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Pretty straightforward, right? Sure, John. Between good and good. There, there's good in the sense of having been enabled and ordained by God. But there's also a difference, even among non-believers, of murderous actions and kind, humane actions. And since we know that God, God is the one who enables and wills the humane actions, even on the part of non-believers, we can still say that their actions are good is temple blessings, right? But what matters most is what is what? Eternal. Yes, Rick? Um, something that relates to this is a, kind of a separate uh, line of argument, but when you look at in, in the realm of apologetics, what is the basis for good you know, versus evil? It has to for them to God. Um, and so, even though people who do good things may not be doing it because they are believers in the true God, they have grasped a, a, a value system identifying something as good as opposed to evil because of the nature of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, that. that plays in a lot if you start talking about the, the problem of evil. Right. You have to have some basis for it. Yeah. Um, Define good versus evil. So the whole idea of what is good comes from the nature of God and what he's called. Right. Very good. Dee. If I could just extrapolate on that a wee bit. 
there are a lot of people that do these things that think that they're doing good and because they're doing good they're going to go to heaven without the knowledge of Jesus Christ at all. They're blinded. They're blinded. Yes. Yes. But John's point is good. I mean, yes. It is good that people are doing it. Right. But they, it's a shame it's not for the right reason. I think the, like, you call it like civil righteousness, good works done by unregenerate people. This is chapter 16 in the Confession, paragraph 7. They might be of good use to themselves and to others, but because they're not coming from a heart purified by faith, they're sinful and cannot um, cannot merit any grace from God. But, like Rick was saying, um, because God has put the law on the hearts of men and in our consciences, that, that that's an aspect of common grace, and so there is this restraint of sin uh, from the law being put on our consciences, and, and that is a good thing, but the good that unregenerate people do is not um, truly good. It's not a salvific good. Oh, good in the ultimate sense. Right. Thank you, Clark. Harry, can I just sure. piggyback off, sure. off of you, Joan? I, I think that I definitely don't think we should write off, as you were saying, Joan, as like senseless or useless, because I think God uses everything for his glory, and he uses, in his grace and mercy, he uses people as a means to fulfill his will and his purposes, and that means sometimes even unbelievers, and I mean, there's lots of examples even in scripture of him using evil for good and for his will, so I definitely don't think it's useless or senseless, you know, the, those things that unbelievers do. We live now in what's called what the realm of common grace. grace, the realm of common grace. So there is a measure of grace that's extended to non-believers. Even non-believers are not as evil as they can be, right? There is a restraint upon evil right now. That's what it means that we live in a time of common grace. And why does God give this time? What is this time for? It's not ultimate, right? I mean, this is not the ultimate state. Yes, D. God's giving us the opportunity to come to himself, uh, make that decision before Jesus Christ comes. Right. It's essentially to bring in the elect, right? That's what this time of common grace is. It's time for believers to be what? What are we to be to the world? Yes, salt and light. Very good. Witnesses. We're to witness Jesus Christ. We're to tell people the good news. And that God may use that to bring people to, to faith. And he does use that. He uses the preached word. That's what this time of common grace is for. It's to bring in the full of God's elect. But it's a temporary time, right? There won't ever be... Common grace won't be in heaven, right? So verse 13 can try to strike us a little bit strange. It says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The King James translates the phrase, Gird up the loins of your mind. Peter's employing what? It's a, it's a military metaphor here. 
In the ancient world, individuals dressed in long garments, and in order to prepare for battle, they pulled up their garments to free themselves for quick movement. The point is that Christians must be fully alert for battle. Although we cannot see it, indeed, a war rages on between believers and unbelievers. The churches in Asia Minor may not perceive that their persecutors, whom they might be, whoever they might be, government, family members, whoever they might be, are warring against them in what is what a cosmic conflict. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and sober of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. It's the same with the challenges that we encounter, the trials that we encounter. There's a spiritual battle occurring in the unseen realm. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Any thoughts or questions about that? That evil manifests in flesh. Yes. So it's, it's not... I mean, ultimately, the battle is is a spiritual battle, but spiritual does not mean not material. Right, very good. So individuals and institutions like operate within this kingdom of darkness, waging war against the kingdom of light. Yes. So the next three verses, 14, 15, and 16, focus on how the churches must live in the midst of a hostile world. Peter says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires, but just as he who has called you is holy, so also be holy in all you do. Peter shifts from a military metaphor to now, what? A religious one. Since the congregations are the true and living temple of God, they must live accordingly. So holiness in the Old Testament is wedded to God's nature and His glorious presence that dwells in Israel's midst. The general thrust of the holiness in the Old Testament is the strong conviction that the Israelites must not only be clean, but progress into a state of utter holiness to be fit in God's presence. To be holy is to be unblemished or unmarred. It is to experience life in all its fullness as God has originally intended it to be. And then Peter gives the basis for his exhortation that the churches be holy by citing a common text from Leviticus. This is from Leviticus 44 and 45. You shall be holy, for I am holy. The point of these quotations is straightforward. Israel's holiness springs from their deliverance out of Egypt's bondage. Israel is God's legal heir, so sin has no business inhabiting Israel's land. God redeems Israel from Egypt to be different from the neighboring pagan nations, to imitate his holy character. Peter, now by applying this text to the largely Gentile churches in Asia Minor, he's in effect effect claiming that these small congregations are the true Israel, and as such must now behave accordingly. So this apostolic teaching about God's judgment has been misunderstood. On the one hand, some have considered God's justifying grace 
that consider that God's justifying grace must remove God's justice and His holy wrath. Right. Have you heard that? Right. They have denied that the Christian will stand before God's judgment seat, that God will just relax His just justice and let a sinner pass on to heaven. Is that possible? Yes, it could be a component of that. Can God ever be not just? No. It's an attribute of God, and God is simple, right? It's not like there's something out there that's just, and God can be just sometimes and not just sometimes. He cannot relax his justice. So it creates a major problem, right, because we're sinners. How can we stand before a just God? Can't. D, go ahead. That's right. We, in of ourselves, cannot. We need a righteousness to stand before God. And we talked about last time that that righteousness is not one that is inherent to us, it is an alien righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In the end, heaven must be earned. came, he was born in a manger, right? And he grew up loving God every moment of his life. Never broke a commandment. Every second of his life, he loved God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind. He did not have to do that for himself, right? He was doing something. He was performing a work. He was earning a righteousness. When he died on the cross, our sin was put on him. And that justice that must be meted out, God's justice must be meted out. The justice that we deserve, he took upon himself. And that righteousness that he earned was transferred to us. The word we used last time was imputed, imputation. And that is the gospel, right? That is how we are saved. It reminds me of uh, Romans 3, after almost three chapters of showing how all humans are sinful. Paul talks about the righteousness of God being made manifest apart from the law. And in Christ Jesus, in verse 26 says, it was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the gospel in Christ uh, does not show that God is not just, but that he is just. Because he is the justifier of one who has faith in Christ. Good, thank you, Carmen. So, any other thoughts or questions about that? God cannot relax his justice, as some people think. On the other hand, many have affirmed accountability in the day of judgment, but have interpreted God's final verdict as justification by works added to initial salvation by grace. Many of these things that we just talked about. In these categories, no Christian could then be sure of heaven until the last judgment. We stand before God, we have to show God something we've done. There's no hope in that, there's no good news in that. Harry, I've heard something recently. Uh, a lot of times you, you see Joseph, uh, Joseph, 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 
just is, is an aspect of his love. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to, to think through. Is that it's not like one or the other. They're really related. And it's just that she really is an expression of his love. Mm -hmm. It is. It's more, maybe it's an expression of God. God is love and God is just. He's not, those are just God's attributes. God is his attributes. God is simple. Can I, can I add something to that? I remember a big moment for me when I realized that in the Old Testament when, when, it, when a prophet speaks of God will judge his people, will come to judge his people, that's, that's not a warning. That's a promise. That, that is an expression of his love. That means he will. Well, the other part of it is, if he was immutable to all God, he could be changed. He had vagaries. He could be, you know, be blown about by the wind. He had emotions that were, you know, you never knew what you were, what you were getting, right? Then his justice would be, you, you could never be sure of his justice, right? Yes. You could never be sure of his love. But because of he is, right, unchanging, immutable, uh, sovereign, you know, just is part of that because he has set forth his law. Right. That's one of the problems with Islam is that they never know. Well, it's the problem with many world religions that, you know, That's very good, Keith. Thank you. And what's that called? It, it, it's, a, it's a heresy. And God can change. God can react to us. It's called open theism. It is a heresy. When God made his promise to Abraham, when he told the snake, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And he told Abraham that out of you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Those promises... What you're saying, Keith, is that I mean, we cling to those promises, right? That's the only hope we have. That's the only hope for all of creation. But God does not change. He keeps his word. And that's why we can rest in his promises. In the midst of the trials, when we're going through the pain, and the difficulties, we trust in a God who is unchanging, that he will accomplish his good will. And whatever we are going through, as much pain and difficult as it is, we're going through the blood and the sweat and the tears, that he will use that for our good and his glory. The anchor for our souls. <coughs> Sorry, Rick? The anchor for our souls. The anchor for our souls, yes. If I could slightly modify the line of him. Thrill of hope, a weary soul rejoices. Yes. It doesn't mean that things are, are easy, right? We talked about this last time. You know, the, the blood and the sweat and the tears are real. We feel that. We feel real pain. We feel real anguish. But they are temporary. There waits for us a time where every tear will be wiped away. 
death and sin will be no more. And that is our great hope. That's why we praise our Savior. So on the one hand, we, people say God relaxes his justice. On the other hand, we say, well, something you do is going to contribute to your salvation in the end. But New Testament writers do not share the confusion of either one of these errors. The reality and finality of God's judgment are often affirmed. We are taught that Christ will be the judge in that day. At the same time, we are told that God's verdict on us has already been pronounced. In Christ Jesus, we are justified. We have passed from death to life. The judge in the last day is none other than our own Savior. God's final judgment will glorify His justice. He will pronounce for all the redeemed the satisfaction of Christ's atoning death and the merit of His perfect obedience. And yet, our faithfulness will be displayed, but not as the basis of our acceptance, but to show the reality of the faith in our Savior. To those who have been unfaithful, the Lord himself will declare the folly of their hypocritical confessions. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. But Peter does not call us to this soul-destroying dread. The judge is our father, who has begotten us to be his children and given us a sure hope as heirs of his blessing. But he does call us to reverent fear. Our Father is the living God. He is holy, holy in the high mystery of his deity, holy in the perfection of his righteousness. Because he is holy, we too must be holy, for we are his people. Peter quotes a central passage from the Old Covenant to show that the church is, in fact, Israel, the true people of God. Coming to God as our Holy Father means leaving the lifestyle handed down to us from our fathers. Verse 18. We cannot continue to follow the lust that controlled us when we lived in ignorance of our Father in heaven. Verse 14. Peter with Paul describes the Gentiles as not knowing God, without hope, and without God in the world. When God is not acknowledged, a void is opened at the heart of life and of culture. Verse 18. And into that void rushes desires for power sexual exploitation. Again, Peter reflects the charge given to the Old Testament Israel. They were not to pattern their lives with the customs of the land of Egypt that they had left behind, nor the customs of the land of Canaan that they were to enter. Rather, they were to pattern their lives in the commandments of God. The murals of Pompeii reflect the decadence of the Gentile world in Peter's day. Contemporary Western culture seems to be overtaking the Roman world in moral decay. Pornography, licentious music, dance forms, sex-ridden advertising. Having fed the flood of dissipation that Peter will describe in chapter 4, verse 4. Gender ideology, where one may identify as the sex opposite they were created, or somewhere along the spectrum, or may not even identify as sex at all, as the letters LGBTQ plus indicate, has become normalized, or even celebrated, and is preached to us by our cultural influencers. Racism of all forms is on the rise. And yet there's another dimension to this that's reflected by a story that Chuck Colson gave. Chuck Colson describes an interview on, done on American television. It was Mike Wallace. He was speaking with a man named Yehul Diner. He was a concentration camp survivor who testified against Adolf Eichmann at the Nuremberg Trials. 
Wallace showed him a clip from the 1961 trial of the Nazi architect of the Holocaust. Colson describes a scene as Diner walked into the courtroom to come face to face with the man who had sent him to Auschwitz 18 years earlier. Diner began to sob uncontrollably, then fainted, collapsing into a heap on the floor as the presiding judicial officer pronounced his gavel for order in the courtroom. Why was was Denier overcome by hatred, fear, horrid memories? Here he is, faced with this architect of the Holocaust, he himself being a Holocaust survivor. No, he was not filled with hatred, fear, or horrid memories. It was none of those. Rather, as Denier explained to Wallace, all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent him and many others for their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. He said, this is I quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. It is the reality of sin in the heart of everyone that is the source of so much evil and oppression in the world. Holiness, holiness means that the pattern is broken, that the sinner is transformed. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So what does this mean for you? I ask that very personally. What is the benefit? Do you struggle with same-sex attraction? Do you struggle with anger? Do you struggle with pornography? Do you struggle with depression? Do you struggle with envy? Do you struggle with heterosexual, same-sex lust? Do you struggle with just fill in the blank? For each of us, it will be a little bit different. The struggle is real. But do these two things. Number one, define who you are. Number two, who controls you? Again, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do those sins control us? No. Do those sins define who we are? No. We are children of the living God. Satan has no power over us. We kneel before God and ask for the Holy Spirit to intervene in our lives. He provides that power. It's a power that we don't have on our own. We would be lost going up against this spiritual realm of Satan if we were dependent upon our own power. We have been given power from above because of who we are now in Christ. So any thoughts or questions on that? Josh said one time, we have enough to do struggling against the old man than to fear the powers of Satan. Right. Not that we shouldn't right. have help in this category. But the old man is a worthy foe, yeah. isn't he or she, right? We all struggle between that already and the not yet. But we must also 
never forget that we have been transferred from the dominion of darkness to, to the dominion of the beloved Son. There is hope for us. Sin does not control us. It does not define who we are. Moving on to verses 17 and 21. These verses are rich with a variety of metaphors and an Old Testament imagery. The first key metaphor is the church's identification as foreigners. We are strangers. In verse 1, he called us what? Does anyone remember? Strangers, exiles. Residing in the land is not our own. Our citizenship is where? In heaven. So what does that mean for us today? That our citizenship is in heaven. Does this mean that this is, this is going to be our best life now? Should we expect health and wealth and prosperity? No. What's that called? The prosperity gospel, yes. Should we separate ourselves from the world? Since we're not citizens of the world, should we separate ourselves? No? Yes, and no. You have a physical separation. Yes. But we shouldn't go live in a monastery, separate ourselves, right? And cut ourselves off. We have a dual citizenship. We are citizens of heaven, yet we are citizens of our land. So we are not called to escape, but to what? We talked about it earlier. Be a witness. Our mission is, again, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ in this world. To be witnesses of the power of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. Should the church primarily be about social change? If our focus is in changing society, we forget that this world is under judgment, and improving one's temporal life does not ultimately save people. People need Christ first and foremost. Like Israel in exile, we pray for the peace of the city and the country where we live, but our hearts are in the heavenly city of God. In spite of our humanness, we are really extraterrestrials. We'll never think about that. At Edmund Clowney said that we are actually neo-terrestrials, representatives of the new humanity in Jesus Christ. And we now live in reverent fear of our Father. Our lifestyle as a holy people is a witness to the nations. Christians are therefore called to set about living as strangers, this is key, with a mission. We are ambassadors on earth, reverting our Father in heaven. According to verse 120, Christ was revealed in these latter days, in these last times for your sake. Christ, Israel's long-awaited king, inaugurates the latter days, which refer to the final phase in history when Israel will commit idolatry and God will send the nation into exile. An antagonist will rise, persecute and deceive Israel, and the nation will be engaged in warfare with the surrounding nations. This can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Ezekiel 38, Daniel 2, Daniel 8. After this, the Messiah will arrive on the scene, redeem Israel from the nation's clutches, eliminate wickedness, and install God's eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Genesis 49, Numbers 24, Daniel 2. Christ's coming began the destruction of the old age and the inbreaking of the new. According to J. Ramsey Michaels, the assumption of this epistle is not that Jesus is absent from his people, 
so that he must come. Rather, he is present with us, but invisible. Therefore, he must be revealed. Peter's readers must grasp their relationship to God, Israel, and the surrounding hostile communities in the light of the living and the overlap of the ages. Remember we talked about this last time, the overlap of the ages? What has already happened, but yet not yet consummated? The kingdom of God has been inaugurated with the arrival of the Messiah, his death, resurrection, and pouring out of his spirit. But now we await the, the consummation. I think you could say either one, John. The final section of the chapter exhorts the church to love one another because believers have been purified and renewed through God's word. Verse 22 recalls what has already been established in the preceding sections. Christ has purified his church. That is, God has made us alive, set us apart, and declared us righteous. Therefore, we must have sincere love for one another and love one another deeply from the heart, verse 22. And then the next few verses express why we must love another, why we must love one another, and the reason is because we have been born again, verse 123. Believers are part of the new creation, a process that we said started with the resurrection of Christ. And now Peter says that we have been converted through the living and enduring word of God, verse 23. Peter then cites Isaiah chapter 40, verses 24 to 25 to support this claim. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. The immediate context of this Old Testament quotation, Isaiah 40, serves as a transitional point within the book of Isaiah. Anticipating the first half of the book, Isaiah chapter 40 to 66 describes Israel's release from Babylonian captivity, the journey to the promised land, and the creation of the new heavens and new earth. All of this will take place through Isaiah's servant. Isaiah 40 describes God restoring his people from Babylonian captivity and leading them through the desert to the promised land. And the theme of God's word and enduring humanity, humanity failing, resonates throughout the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 is cast as a prophecy, and Peter quotes this prophecy to show what Christ has done in direct fulfillment of that promise. Through the work of Christ, as Israel's suffering servant, the church has been initially redeemed from Babylonian exile, has begun to live in the promised land of the new creation. So any questions, thoughts? One comment. Sure. Yes. 
That's right. Thank you. Anything else? Okay, let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this time of study. We pray that you would apply your word to our hearts, that we would be filled with love for Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And now, Lord, please prepare our hearts and our minds to go to worship. Allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Allow us to increase our faith and our dependence upon you and to love you more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.